Chapter 10 Anticipation And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12, 2-3 As noted in the previous chapter, the divinely ordained calling of man to exercise dominion over the earth was given at creation, while Adam's redemptive restoration to that calling began immediately after his fall. Following this, the revelation of God in Scripture begins tracing the line of the Redeemer, developing the hope-filled eschatological expectation of the comprehensive redemption that he will surely bring. Anticipation in the Pre-Mosaic and Early Mosaic Eras The Noahic Covenant The various features of the Noahic Covenant are found in Genesis 6, 17-22, and 8, 20-9-17. In this covenant, we have a clear reaffirmation of the cultural mandate, which is fundamental to the outworking of God's eschatological purpose through man. We also have a continuance of God's gracious, redemptive revelation as the ongoing basis of the cultural mandate, which is likewise necessary to eschatology. This covenant is established with God's people, the family of Noah, who alone escaped the deluge by the grace of God. Thus, this should not be deemed solely a common grace covenant, for it was directly made with God's people, Noah's family, was established on the basis of grace and redemptive sacrifice, Genesis 6, 8, 8, 20 through 22, and is united with God's other redemptive covenants. Compare Hosea 2.18 with Genesis 6.20, and following. The cultural mandate, then, has an especial relevance to the function of God's people in the world. The Noahic reaffirmation of the mandate is expressly made with God's people, the you of Genesis 9.1-12. On the basis of divine covenant, God's people are called to the forefront of cultural leadership, with the religious aspects of culture being primary. In the Noahic Covenantal episode, we also witnessed the objectivity of God's relationship with man. The world was judged in history for its sin. The rainbow, which signifies God's covenant mercy, is established with Noah and all that are with him, and their seed, Genesis 9:12. This indicates that the world will be protected from God's curse through the instrumentality of the church, the people of God. This covenant is only made indirectly with unbelievers who benefit from God's protection only as they are not opposed to God's people. Because of God's love for his people, he preserves the orderly universe, Genesis 8, 20 through 22. His enemies serve his people, common grace, Genesis 9, 10, b. Thus we see the objective corporate sanction of God against sin in the flood, which also serves as a type of final judgment, 2 Peter 3, 4 through 6. We also see God's judicial sanctions in history in his ordaining of capital punishment, Genesis 9:6. God's objective judgment therefore finds civil expression in the affairs of man. His grant of legitimate authority to the civil government to enforce capital punishment is based on a religious principle, namely the image of God in man, Genesis 9:6, and is given to the world through the church, that is, Noah's family. God ordains civil sanctions as a means of preserving the human race for his redemptive purposes. Compare Romans 13, 1-4, 1 Peter 2, 13-14. The Abrahamic Covenant As the scarlet thread of redemption, a non-literal metaphor, 
is progressively woven more distinctively into the fabric of scriptural revelation and history, the eschatological pattern of redemptive victory becomes more evident and more specific. The patriarchal and mosaic eras demonstrate this fact. Here I will survey a few of the more significant references in these eras in order to illustrate this truth. In Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant continues the redemptive theme begun in Genesis 3.15 and traced through Genesis 6-9. through The active redemptive restoration of the fundamental relationship of man with the God of the covenant is greatly intensified through God's establishing of his gracious covenant with Abraham and his seed. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Genesis 12, 1-3a. Here we may discern three aspects of the promise. The promise applies to 1. A seed, 2. A land, and 3. The nations. The land and seed promises are given prominence in Genesis 15:5 and 18. Then he brought Abram outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, Shall your descendants be? On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis 15:18. This promise was covenantal for it involved sanctions. The divine promise clearly involved temporal blessings for Abraham, including a seed and a land. According to the emphatic declaration of scriptures, history witnesses the fulfillment of the national aspects of the temporal blessings of the seed and the land promises. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms of the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. 1 Kings 4, 20-21 So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their forefathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Joshua 21, 43-45 You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. Nehemiah 9.23 The dispensationalist argues for a future fulfillment based on the promise that God will give Abraham the land forever, Genesis 13.15, as an everlasting possession, Genesis 17.8. This argument is not persuasive, however. In the first place, there is a common use of olam, forever, everlasting, where it is employed of long-term temporal situations. Secondly, it is evident that God's covenants and promises are conditional upon ethical obedience, even when this is not specifically stated, no conditions, no covenant. It is the conditional nature of all prophecy that makes the outcome contingent on the ethical decisions of men. For instance, Jonah was clearly told that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days, Jonah 3.4, yet God repented of his determination, Jonah 3.10. The Abrahamic covenant was conditioned on the ethical obligation to keep the way of the Lord, Genesis 18.17-19. This is why it was accompanied by circumcision. 
Israel's forfeiture of the land promised in the Abrahamic covenant was clearly possible, as God's word makes abundantly clear. Consequently, we must understand the biblical view of the land. The land of Israel is his holy land, Leviticus 25:23, Psalm 78:54. It depended on his favor upon Israel, Hosea 9:3, Jeremiah 2:7, and his dwelling therein, Numbers 35:34, Leviticus 26, which continued as long as Israel was obedient to him, Deuteronomy 4:40, Isaiah 1:19. Jeremiah 15, 13 through 14, 17, 1 through 4. When Israel is rejected by God, the promise of the land is rejected by God. Sanctions. Furthermore, the promised land served as a type of the whole earth, which is the Lord's, Psalms 24, 1. It is, as it were, a tie to the Lord of the entire earth. As such, it pictured the rest brought by Christ's kingdom, which shall cover the earth. See Hebrews 3 through 4. Hebrews 11:8-16 shows that although Abraham received the physical land of Canaan, he was looking forward to the eternal city and kingdom of God. Canaan is a type of the new heavens and earth that began with the first advent of Christ in seed form. Galatians 4:26, Hebrews 12:22-29. In Psalm 37:11, the psalmist speaks of God's promise to his people, "But the meek shall inherit the earth." But Jesus takes this promise and extends it over the entire earth in Matthew 5, 5. Abraham apparently understood the land promise as a down payment, representing the inheriting of the world, Romans 4:13. Paul expands the land promises to extend across all the earth when he draws them into the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 3. In several divine covenants, we can trace the expansion of these land promises. Adam was given a garden, Genesis 2, 8. Abraham's seed was given a nation, Joshua 1. The new covenant church was given the world, Matthew 28:18-20. But the fundamental blessedness of the Abrahamic covenant, like that of the Adamic covenant before it, was essentially redemptive rather than political. The seed line was primarily designed to produce the Savior. The land promise was typological of the Savior's universal dominion. The Abrahamic covenant involved a right relationship with God, as indicated in Genesis 17:7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. That which is most important in the plan of God is the spiritual relation rather than the relation of blood. John 8:44. compare Matthew 12:47:50 As Paul says, so it was even in the Old Testament era. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter. Romans 2:28 through 29. Now let us consider the postmillennial victory expectations inherent in the Abrahamic covenant. The redemptive line is here narrowed from the seed of the woman to the family of Abraham. It will continue to narrow until it issues forth in the singular seed, Christ. Galatians 3.16, John 8.56, compare Luke 3.23-38. Nevertheless, the redemptive promise ultimately would include all the families of the earth. The Hebrew word for families here is mispakah, which includes nations. 
Thus, the Abrahamic covenant will include the nations beyond Israel. The ultimate purpose of the Abrahamic covenant, in keeping with the Adamic covenant earlier, is nothing less than world conversion. As we shall point out more particularly in our next section, rather than Jewish exaltation as per dispensationalism. This should be expected since the Lord is king of the whole earth and desires the world to know him. The New Testament clearly informs us of the spiritual implications of the seed in terms of the blessings for the nations. Abraham has become the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 4, 12, 16. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 7-8, 29. Thus, as we shall see in our next section, the Old Testament kingdom prophecies anticipate the sharing of the covenantal glory with others universally. Due to redemption, the curse of Genesis 3 upon all men is countered by the Abrahamic covenant, in which begins the nullifying of the curse. The expectation of victory is so strong that we may find casual references based on confident expectation. The seed is promised victory in accordance with the original Proto-Evangelium. Abraham's seed is to possess the gates of the enemy. Compare Genesis 22.17 with Matthew 16.18. Genesis 49.8-10 promises that Judah shall maintain the scepter of rule until Shiloh, Christ, shall come, and then to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We should notice that the plural peoples, Shiloh's winning of obedience, is not among the Jews only, the people singular. Here is the first expression mentioned of a personal redeemer, and that redeemer is promised rule over all the peoples. Ezekiel and Paul both allude to this reference with confidence. Ezekiel in anticipation, Ezekiel 21:27, Paul in realization, Galatians 3:19. Numbers 14:21 confirms the victorious expectation with a formulaic oath. Truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. In Numbers 24, 17-19, Balaam hearkens back to Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49:10. He foresees an all-powerful worldwide dominion for the Messiah. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir its enemies also shall be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and shall destroy the remnant from the city. 1 Samuel 2.10 promises that, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Thus it be said from the New Testament perspective, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 4.13 Anticipation in the Messianic Psalms In the prophetic era, we discover a rich development of the revelation of God's plan of redemption, and with it the sure promise of glorious victory for the redeemed. I offer here only a brief consideration of a few of the leading psalmic references. Psalm 2. Particularly significant in this regard are the Messianic Psalms. In Psalm 2, Jehovah God laughs at the opposition of man to him and to his Messiah. Psalm 2.2 and Daniel 9.26 show that the term Messiah, that is, anointed one, was commonly understood to designate the great deliverer and king. Kings were anointed in the Old Testament. King and Messiah are used interchangeably in certain places in Scripture. John 1, 41, 49, Mark 15, 32, Luke 23, 2. According to Peter, the opposition of the nations to the Lord and his Messiah includes the Jews, Acts 4, 25 through 28, and occurred in the ministry of Christ at his crucifixion. In Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5, Christ is seen as already having fulfilled Psalm 2.7, which occurred at the resurrection, Acts 13.33. Consequently, Psalm 2 can be neither amillennial nor premillennial proof text. The scene of this resistance is on the earth, contra amillennialism, and in the past, contra premillennialism. The scene of God's victory over rebels is also in history. Rather than at the second advent, this psalm's fulfillment is spoken of in Acts 13.33-34, as set in motion with the resurrection of Christ. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. The exaltation of Christ, including his resurrection, ascension, and session, established him as king, Romans 1.4. Matthew 28.18 It was at Jerusalem, the location of Zion, Psalms 2.6, where Jesus was crucified, suffering the resistance and rage of the nations, Psalm 2.1-3, and resurrected, Psalm 2.7, Acts 13.33. It was there also that the gospel was first preached in the New Covenant era, Luke 24, 49-52, Acts 1-2. through The Messiah is promised dominion over the nations, not just one nation, Israel, and the ends of the earth, not just one region, Palestine, as his permanent possession, Psalm 2-8. Though they would resist him, Psalm 2, 1-3, he would break them, Psalm 2-9, in his dominion. On the basis of this promise, the kings and judges of the earth are exhorted to worship and serve the Son, Psalm 2, 10-12. It anticipates progressive fulfillment in time and on earth. Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, it is prophesied that all the ends of the earth, extensive, will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families, intensive, of the nations will worship before thee. Verse 27. Interestingly, like Psalm 2, it opens with a reference to Christ's suffering. In fact, Psalm 22, 1-21 is universally recognized among evangelicals as prophesying the crucifixion. 
Verse 1 is uttered by Christ in his agony on the cross, Matthew 27, 46. Verse 18 is also fulfilled at the cross, John 19, 2. But it immediately makes its way to his glorious dominion, verses 22 through 31, as per the pattern applied to his crucifixion and resurrection in the New Testament. Sufferings, then glory, Luke 24, 26, 1 Peter 1, 11. After the suffering, his praise will be declared in the church, Psalm 22, 22, Hebrews 2, 12. That praise includes the fact that the church, Great Assembly, Hebrews 12, 23, will proclaim his victory, Psalm 22, 27 and following. The reason he will save the earth is that the earth is his by right, Psalm 22, 28. He created the material earth for his glory. Alexander and Hingstenberg both note that there is an interesting collusion of Christ's concluding words on the cross, it is finished, with the closing words of this psalm, which speaks of the cross and the glory to follow. He has performed it. The performance of his work is redemptive, including the cross and the crown. This obviously anticipates the fruition of the covenant of God given to Abraham and expanded in Moses and David. This cannot be understood amillennially as in heaven or in the new earth, for it speaks of the earth as turning and remembering, that is, conversions. It also speaks of death, verse 29, and later generations following their fathers, Psalm 22, 30-31. Psalm 72. Here, the messianic victory theme is tied to pre-consummative history before the establishment of the eternal new heavens and earth. Let them fear thee while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verses 5 through 8. Psalm 72 is a glowing description of the reign of the Messiah as righteous, verses 1 through 7, universal, verses 8 through 11, beneficent, verses 12 through 14, perpetual, verses 15 through 17. It speaks of the social, verses 2 through 4, 12 through 14, and economic benefits of his reign, verse 16, as well as the spiritual benefits, verses 5 through 7. 17. The imagery of pouring rain here reflects the spiritual presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, John 14, 16 through 18, being poured out upon the world from on high, Isaiah 32, 15, 44, 3, Ezekiel 39, 29, Joel 2, 28 through 29, Zechariah 12, 10, Acts 2, 17 through 18. Christ is in us via the Holy Spirit, which is poured out upon us since Pentecost. According to the psalmist, kings of the various nations will rule in submission to him, verses 10 through 11. Because of his beneficent reign, there will be a population increase, verse 16b, Zechariah 2, 4. The flourishing of the righteous, verse 7, in the city, verse 16, indicates a rapid increase in population under his beneficence, as wars and pestilence cease. Population increase is associated with Messiah's reign in prophecy, Psalm 110.3, Isaiah 9.2, 49.20, Zechariah 2.4. This is in harmony with the cultural mandate, 
Genesis 1, 26 and following, and covenantal blessing, Deuteronomy 28, 4, Leviticus 26, 9. Psalm 110. Psalm 110.1 is the Old Testament passage most frequently quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. It has a great bearing on New Testament theology. Psalm 110.1-2 reads, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The psalm is a purely prophetic psalm, having no reference to David himself, as is obvious from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22:42-45, and in that David was not a priest, verse 4, and it clearly anticipates Christ's enemies being subjugated by him. But he does this while sitting at the right hand of God, sit until, not in arising, leaving heaven, and returning to the earth at the second advent. That this psalm is now in force, expecting the ultimate victory of Christ, is evident in both its numerous New Testament allusions and in that he is already the Melchizedekian priest mentioned in verse 4. Compare Hebrews 7. This particular priest was one who was both king and priest, according to Genesis 14.18, as is Christ. His strong rod will rule from Zion which portrays the New Covenant phase church as headquartered at Jerusalem, where the gospel was first preached. He rules through his rod, which is his word, Isaiah 2, 3, 11, 4. He leads his people onward into battle against the foe, verse 3. The allusion to kings in verse 5, following as it does the reference to Melchizedek in verse 4, probably reflects back on Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek after his conquest of the four kings in Genesis 14. Because kings is in the emphatic position in Hebrew, it indicates Christ will not only rule the lowly, but also kings and nations through his redemptive power, as in Psalm 2 and 72. His rule shall be over governments, as well as individuals. It will be societal, as well as personal. Anticipation in the Prophets The prophets greatly expand the theme of victory under the Messiah. I will highlight several of the prophetic pronouncements regarding victory. Due to space limitations, only three of these from Isaiah will be given a fuller treatment. Isaiah 2, 1-4 In Isaiah 2, we learn that in the last days, there will be a universally attractive influence of the worship of God, an international dispersion and influence of Christianity, issuing forth in righteous living on the personal level and peace on the international level. This is because there will be judgment in history. He shall judge between the nations, and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Verse 4a. Isaiah indicates the last days will be the era that witnesses these things, not some era after these last days. The last days begins with the coming of Christ. Isaiah's younger contemporary, Micah, repeats this prophecy almost verbatim, Micah 4, 1-3. Here, the reference to Judah and Jerusalem stand for the people of God as Israel of Judah, due in Jeremiah 31, 31, which is specifically applied to the church in the New Testament. The reference to the mountain, the house of the God of Jacob, and Zion refer to the church, which according to the express revelation of the New Testament is the temple and house of God and the earthly representation of the city of God, Hebrews 12, 22, 1 Peter 2, 6, 
That is set on a hill, Matthew 5.14, Hebrews 12.22. Again, we must remember that it was in Jerusalem where the historical redemption by Christ was wrought, Acts 10.39, Romans 9.33, 1 Peter 2.6, and where Christianity began, Acts 1-2. Isaiah's statement that it will be established in the top of the mountains indicates Christ's church will be permanently fixed, rendered permanently visible. After the introductory phase, last days, Isaiah places the word established first for emphasis. In the eschatological portrayals of Ezekiel and Zechariah, this house is gigantic, Ezekiel 42. Jerusalem is seen towering over a plain, Zechariah 14.10. Christianity, the last stage of God's redemptive plan in history, will be so established as to be firmly fixed. In Isaiah 2.2 and Micah 4.1, there is a knifehold principle that must be understood of an enduring condition, and the same is implied in the representation in verses 3-4 of Jehovah's teaching function of his judging between many nations and of the state of peace and security prevailing, every man sitting under his vine and fig tree, and to make none of them afraid, the last in Micah only. It is to this eschatological phenomenon that all nations shall flow, Isaiah 2, 2-3, that will witness the gathering of the people, Genesis 49:10, and shall enjoy the flowing in of many people and strong nations, Zechariah 8, 20-23. The nations shall flow there like a river to worship the Lord as a result of the desire wrought in conversion. They shall be discipled in his ways and learn the strictures of holiness from his law, Isaiah 2, 3. The coming of the eschatological fulfillment of redemption, Galatians 4.4, leads to the permanent establishment of Christianity as an agency of gracious influence in the world to salvation and sanctification. Evangelism is indicated in the flowing river of people urging others to come, go ye, to the house of God, Isaiah 2.3 with the overwhelming numbers being converted to a saving knowledge of Christ and being discipled in God's law. Great social transformation naturally follows, Isaiah 2.4. It is a picture of universal peace that Isaiah gives, but it is a religiously founded peace. The peace with God, verses 2-3, through gives rise to peace among men, verse 4. Amillennialist Henko disposes of this postmillennial text as treated by Bettner with an incredible sweep of the hand. Now it is true that Mount Zion has a symbolic and typical meaning in scripture. It is also true that the reference is often to the church of Jesus Christ, as Bettner remarks in connection with Hebrews 12.22, but one wonders at their tremendous jump which is made from the idea of Mount Zion as symbolic of the church to the idea that the church having attained a position so that it stands out like a mountain on a plain will be prominent and regulative in all world affairs. There is not so much as a hint of this idea in the text. The conclusion is wholly unwarranted. Having granted that Mount Zion is symbolic of the church, how can Hanko legitimately call the postmillennial argument a tremendous jump, with not so much as a hint and wholly unwarranted? Hanko's argument is merely a loud denial rooted in his predisposition to amillennialism. What we need here is careful exegesis, not loud assertions as a substitute for exegesis. Isaiah 9, 6-7 
To understand Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, we need to notice the close connection between the birth of the Son, his redemptive humiliation, verse 6, and the devolving of universal government upon him at his exaltation at the resurrection slash ascension. The promise is that this kingdom will grow, issuing forth in peace, verse 7. When Messiah is born into the world, he will be granted his kingdom. The preceding context points also to the first coming of Christ for the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The reference in verse 2 to the people in darkness who see a great light finds fulfillment in Christ. In fact, the great light is Christ, John 8, 12, 12, 46. According to Matthew 4, 16, this began to be fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. In verse 3, the Lord promises to multiply Israel. This is according to the Abrahamic covenant promise of a great seed and influence among the nations. It is accomplished by the calling of the Gentiles as the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.29, which involves the engrafting of them into the stock of Israel, Romans 11.16-19. The merging of Jew and Gentile into one body, Ephesians 2.11-17. The increase of Israel's joy, verse 3, indicates the joy in the coming of the Savior, Luke 2.10, John 3.29. As in Isaiah 2, 3-4, the coming of Christ will result in the cessation of oppression and war, verses 4-5, through 5, which is here portrayed in the burning of the garments of soldiers, symbolizing they will no longer be needed, just as the swords were cast off earlier, Isaiah 2, 4. The reign of Christ over his kingdom, which was entered at his first coming, will be progressive and perpetual. In prophecy, Christ is referred to as the son or branch of David, Jeremiah 23, 5, 33, 13, or as David himself, Jeremiah 39, Ezekiel 34, 23, 23, 37, 24, Hosea 3, 5. At his resurrection, he was raised up to the throne of David, Acts 2, 30-31, which represented the throne of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 28, 5, 29-23. Again, his reign brings peace, for he is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. This peace grows incrementally through history. Christ extends its boundaries far and wide, and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. His righteous rule begins at the first coming of Christ, Luke 1, 32 through 33. Isaiah 11, 9. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, speaks gloriously of the eschatological hope began with Adam, flowing through Noah, and expanded with Abraham. The rod branch from the stem roots spoken of here continues the thought of the preceding context. The collapse of David's house and of the Jewish government is set in contrast to the fall of Assyria, Isaiah 10. The remaining, nearly extinct house of David, reduced to a stump, still has life and will bud with a branch. That branch is Christ. He restores the house of David in the New Testament, hence the emphasis in the New Testament on his genealogy from David. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, Luke 3, 23 through 38. This coming of Christ, his first advent as a stem or branch, was with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 11, 2, and leads to judgment upon his adversaries, verse 4, particularly first century Israel, Matthew 3, 1 through 12, 24, 2 through 34, Revelation 1 through 19, 
As in the other prophecies surveyed, there is the promise of righteousness and peace flowing after him. Isaiah describes the peace between men as a removal of the enmity between wolf and lamb, bear and cow, lion and calf, leopard and kid, serpent and child. Their warring nature is changed by the grace of God. Compare Ephesians 2, 1-4. The future of the earth is seen as glorious. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11:9. This comes about gradually, beginning in that day when the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner, signal, place of rendezvous. To the Gentiles, verse 10, followed by the conversion of the Jews, verse 11. The calling of the Gentiles to Christ, beginning in the first century, is clear evidence of the fulfillment of verse 10 being underway to this very day. Romans 15, 4 through 12. See especially verse 12. The future conversion of the Jews will conclude the fulfillment. Romans 11:12 through 25. We learn later that even the arch enemies of God and his people, Egypt and Assyria, will be healed and will be on equal footing worship with Israel. Isaiah 19.22-24 The God of the Bible is the healer of the nations. Additional Prophecies Jeremiah foresees the day when the Ark of the Covenant will no longer be remembered, but in which all the nations will be gathered before the throne of the Lord. Jeremiah 3.16-17 The New Covenant, initiated by Christ, Luke 22 20, 1 Corinthians 11.25, will issue forth in worldwide salvation, Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Natural enemies of God's Old Testament people will be brought to blessing in the era of the last days, Moab, Jeremiah 48.47, Ammon, Jeremiah 49.6, Elam, Jeremiah 49.39. With Isaiah, Daniel sees the expansion of the kingdom to the point of worldwide dominion. Daniel 2, 31-35, 44-45. Compare Isaiah 9, 6-7. Christ's kingdom shall crush the world kingdom, expressed in the Lord's day in the Roman Empire. The Messiah's ascension and session will guarantee world dominion. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Daniel 7, 13-14. We must notice that Daniel 7, 13-14 speaks of the Christ ascension to the Ancient of Days, not his return to the earth. It is from this ascension to the right hand of God that there will flow forth universal dominion. Days of prosperity, peace, and righteousness lie in the future, particularly in Isaiah and Ezekiel. The Catholicity of the Church's worship is expressed by all nations flowing to Jerusalem and going up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, whereas in Malachi, instead of them going to the temple, the temple is represented as coming to them. We must understand both representations as designed to announce just the Catholicity and spirituality of the gospel worship. These and many other such references refer to the inter-advental age, not to the eternal state. 
as per the amillennial view, for the following reasons. First, numerous prophetic references speak of factors inappropriate to the eternal state, such as the overcoming of active opposition to the kingdom. For example, Psalm 72, 4, 9, Isaiah 11, 4, 13 through 15, Micah 4, 3, birth and aging, for example, Psalm 22, 30 through 31, Isaiah 65, 20, Zechariah 8, 3 through 5, the conversion of people, Psalm 72, 27, death, for example, Psalm 22, 29, 72, 14, Isaiah 65, 20, sin, for example, Isaiah 65, 20, Zechariah 14, 17 through 19, suffering, for example, Psalm 22, 29, 72, 2, 13, 17, and national distinctions and interaction, for example, Psalm 72, 10 through 11, 17, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. Second, though reduced to minority propositions, there will be the continuance of the curse, despite the dominance of victory, Isaiah 65, 25. Isaiah 19.18 may suggest a world ratio of five Christians to one non-Christian. Third, some prophetic language is indisputably applied to the first advent of Christ. Isaiah 9.6 ties Christ's messianic rule in with his birth. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 In Daniel 2, he appears as the destroyer of the world empires in the days of the fourth kingdom, Rome. Daniel 2.35 and following. Fourth, some prophetic passages expect the present pre-consummative order of things to continue into that glorious era, such as the continuance of the sun and the moon. Psalm 72, 5, 7, 17. Fifth, hermeneutically, it would seem that prophetic figures should not be figures of figures. For instance, if the nations breaking their bows and spears is a figure of peace, would the prophetic breaking of bows and spears be a figure of peace, the absence of carnal warfare, which would in turn be a figure of salvation, the absence of spiritual warfare with God? Conclusion The Old Testament anticipates the coming, development, and victory in history of the Messianic Kingdom. This hope is traceable from the earliest days of God's covenantal dealings with man. The divine covenants of the Old Testament frame in the covenantal hope of dominion, while the prophets fill out the messianic expectation. There is the sure expectation of the universal acquiescence of man to the rule of Messiah. This rule is founded in the spiritual realm, but it is not limited to it. His rule will have objective effects in all areas of life, not just the soul, the family, and the local church. Christ's redemption is as comprehensive as sin is and more powerful. Christ's bodily resurrection was more powerful than death. So are the objective effects of his resurrection in history. It will be interesting if some amillennial expositors ever decide to go into print with a detailed discussion of the doctrine of Christ's resurrection and bodily ascension in relation to the amillennial view of Christianity's defeat in history. Here is the question that the amillennialists must answer. How is it that Christ's victory over death in history will not transform culture?